you have not yet answered the question. Give us a simple answer. Will you recant or will you not? You ask for a simple answer. Here it is. Unless you can convince me by scripture and not by popes or councils who have often contradicted each other, unless I am so convinced that I am wrong, I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Therefore, I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are wrapping up our Reformation specials as October comes to a close. And today's episode is all about the Catholic Church and Catholicity. Now, for a while now, Protestants have shied away from the terms Orthodox and Catholic because they are used in the capital C and the capital O sense of meaning those traditions, the Catholic Church being the Roman Catholic Church, including the Eastern Rites, right? Again, because they were submitted to the Roman Pontiff, and then Orthodox for uh, Eastern Orthodox or Oriental Orthodox. But Protestants have historically used both terms, and modern evangelicals and Protestants shouldn't shy away from them. Um, the Roman institution and the Eastern tradition do not have exclusive claims on those terms. Catholic means universal. And so in your, um, you know, historic Protestant confessions, you'll read that we believe in the Catholic church. So take, for instance, I just opened up, um, the London Baptist confession of faith, um, came from the Congregationalist in the reformed tradition. And in the chapter on the church, it opens with the Catholic or universal church, which may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth in all things. So this term was not shied away from, it was embraced and some of you may find some of the rhetoric today to be pretty interesting or surprising. And then others may like, oh, that makes sense. So let's let's kind of talk about it. So Catholics propagate um, that, you know, Protestants are schismatic. They dissent from, from teachings of the church. And they do this with, you know, different methodologies, anachronism, strawman, and so on and so forth. Now, we cannot say that this is, again, exclusive to Catholicism, just as we said in the myths of the Reformation. Protestants do the same thing to Catholics. But today we're talking about one particular instance where Catholicism generally is dishonest, whether intentionally or unintentionally, regarding the Reformation and how Protestants viewed the church. Now, I was actually reading an article this morning where a Catholic commentator said that Protestants reject the Catholic church. 
They said this wholesale, unqualified Protestants reject the Catholic Church and the notions of a one true church. Now, of course, a Catholic would say this because to them, they are the Catholic Church. It's, it's begging the question. It doesn't even leave the discussion open that Protestants do hold to the Catholic Church and the notion of a one true church. It's just not bound up in the institution the same way that Roman Catholicism is. Now, this, of course, this commentary was linked to that idea of the rogue monk Luther, who ruined a perfectly good situation when reform really wasn't necessary and where Luther was just ripping books out of the canon and all that stuff. All this rhetoric was tied into it and ahistorically, to say the least, which we talked about last week. So today we're talking about the Protestants and how they viewed the Catholic Church. In this episode, I will be calling capital C Catholics Roman Catholics for the sake of properly distinguishing between well, we're talking about the subject of Catholicity broadly versus the institution of the Roman Catholic Church, which again does include those Eastern Rites. And if you're wondering why I keep saying that, it's because Eastern Rite Catholics will say, well, we're not Roman, but you submit to the Roman pontiff. You're a Roman Catholic. You fit in the category. Um, Roman Catholics also have changed a bit in how they understand the church and its relation to salvation, which makes discussions a little bit Interesting, you kind of have to take them at a case-by-case basis because uh, Catholics are, again, kind of in that weird turmoil be- between what is you know being a trad, being for Trent, but not being for Vatican II, accepting, rejecting, or partially accepting Vatican II, or there's, there's debates about how Vatican II should be properly interpreted, whether or not it was infallible, binding, and all these other things. And so the point is, is that um, there has been a trajectory of debates on how the Roman Catholic Church understands salvation outside of its institution. As a Protestant, I don't really care to go into all those debates. So beginning with the Reformation, the Reformers had no intention of creating a new church or abandoning the Catholic Church. Instead, they claimed the complete opposite. Not only did they seek to reform the institution of their day, but they went so far to say that they were the true Catholics and that it was Rome who had deviated through innovations and corruption. John Calvin is kind of the the case study for today. Um, he has a work on the necessity of reform of the church. You can go read that for free. And I think monergism.com would be the best place to go get that because you can get the EPUB or you can get the PDF. So go check out that resource. Um, but then he also has a letter to a Roman Catholic named um, Sadolito. And he said, quote, our agreement with antiquity is far closer than yours. Basically, he told this guy, We are more Catholic than you. So for the reformers, they viewed the situation as pushing back against papist innovators, and they had the scriptures and the church fathers on their side. For Calvin, the Catholic church, that is, again, the universal church, was the society of all saints standing on the pillars of doctrine, discipline, and sacrament. This wasn't only the view of Calvin, but also the Lutherans as well. Um, Philip Melanchthon, the associate of Luther and a key mind, of the Augsburg Confession, commented on the meaning of the word Catholic and claimed that the Reformation Church was the true representation of creedal fidelity. He focused on the word Catholic and that it meant universal church. The church is, quote, an assembly dispersed throughout the whole world and its members, wherever they are and however separated in the place, except an externally professed one in the same utterance or true doctrine throughout all ages from the beginning until the very end, end quote. Matthew Barrett and his new book, it just came out the other, I think it just came out this year, uh, The Reformation as Renewal. Uh, he traces this entire discussion about how 
Um, Protestants view themselves as the Catholic Church. I just started it. I, I bought it because it's been on my list. And I was like, hey, you know, this goes with what I'm talking about today. So I started reading it. And he has this to say about Melanchthon's view. Quote, the church is invisible, dispersed across time and space, but a local visible assembly knows whether it is a part of the universal church by whether or not it confesses the one and the same true doctrine. In Melanchthon's estimation, the credibility of the Reformation did not depend primarily on the visible kneeling before the Eucharist, venerating images of the saints, going to pilgrimages to the Vatican, but the invisible truth of their doctrine. The Reformers proclaimed one and the same true doctrine, and as that doctrine was heard and embraced within, by faith alone, the Reforming Church knew that they were part of the assembly dispersed throughout all ages. As for Rome, she claimed to be purely Catholic, but her theological beliefs and ecclesiastical configuration proved otherwise, said Melanchthon. Quote, it is one thing to be called Catholic, something else to be called Catholic in reality. In other words, those are truly called Catholic who accept doctrine of the truly Catholic Church, i.e., that which is supported by the witness of all time, of all ages, which believes what the prophets and the apostles taught, and which does not tolerate factions, heresies, and heretical assemblies, end quote. The papacy could accuse the reformers of heresy, but the reforming church was on the side of orthodoxy. The papacy might be Roman, but it was not purely Catholic, he concluded. According to various reformers, Rome defined Catholicity in a far too narrow sense, tapering Christianity's Catholicity to its institutional badges. The Vatican aligned its children underneath the institutional umbrella, but an umbrella confined to external distinctives such as apostolic succession, papal supremacy, transubstantiation, and indulgences. Outside of its institutional walls, no salvation was possible, which raised major questions about the entire Eastern Church, at least in the mind of the Reformers. Conformity, therefore, was paramount to soteriological ecclesiastical fidelity. End quote. And again, that's from Matthew Barrett's uh, Reformation as Renewal. Basically, what is being said is that for the Roman Catholic institution, in order to be Catholic, you had to abide by these particular distinctions and be within this particular institution, which came with its packaged baggage of external distinctives such as apostolic succession, papal supremacy, transubstantiation, indulgences, the cult of the saints, the cult of the relics, and so on and so forth. This is especially so whenever it was absolutely declared and understood infallibly that in order to be part of the Catholic Church, you must submit to the Roman pontiff. You must accept the papacy. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. But ultimately, what this came down to was there were all these extra biblical requirements to be considered Catholic, and the Reformers rejected that. For the Reformers, these developments and innovations and having those innovations be binding on people lost the credibility of Catholicity for the Roman Catholic institution. And so the goal of the reformers was not to create a new church, but to reform this church and go back to a Catholicity that depended upon the gospel sound doctrine, which was expressed in the ecumenical councils on Christology. The reformers did not neglect tradition and, of course, partaking in the sacraments, which for many, there was a big to do about the fact that many in the Catholic church could not even take communion for a number of reasons. So this was the view of the reformer who did not fall into that category of radical reformation. The radical reformation went way beyond this in saying, no, it's been corrupted since the start. We're starting a new institution that's based on the Bible alone. We don't care about historicity. We don't care about tradition. And so we're going to establish these churches 
and these radical reformers were pushed back against by Calvin, Luther, and so forth. The reformers, however, viewed themselves as being in continuity with the Catholic Church, taking the positions of the Church throughout time and not binding themselves to a particular institution that claimed exclusivity on the basis of distinctives that were extra-biblical. So as scholars have noted, the reformers had no intention to start new churches, but to reform the corruption and innovations of Rome. It was Rome, ultimately, who excommunicated the reformers and refused to reform and thus created new churches. And that's a little bit of an irony in history. So the Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation sealed this reality when it would go as far as to anathematize church fathers that dissented from their own proclamations, such as on the canon and justification. For the reformers... This was further proof of a lack of continuity, and this institution was not concerned with a more diverse Catholicity, but a more narrow claim to exclusivity. That counter-reformation was in the Council of Trent, and the Reformers, in their response to Trent, would say that the Council not only placed itself above Scripture in contradiction, but broke continuity with the Catholic Church. Historian Pelican, in his work, Obedient Rebels, states regarding Trent's position on justification that by adopting the teaching and anathematizing Luther's doctrine of sola fide and imputation, it condemned not only Protestant principles, but considerable portions of Catholic substance it purported to defend. He states, quote, For the weight of the Catholic tradition supported justification by grace alone without human merit, particularly if Catholic tradition included, as it did for reformer Chemnitz not merely learned theology, but also all the prayers of the saints in which they asked to be instructed, illuminated, and sanctified by God. By these prayers, they acknowledge that they cannot have what they are asking for by their own natural powers. Thus, Chemnitz demonstrated the truly traditional and Catholic character of the Reformation doctrine, implying that by closing the door to this doctrine, Trent was making Rome a sect. End quote. For more on the doctrine of justification... Uh, including the continuity with the early church that the reformers utilized, and that includes the early church fathers. You can see the book, The Doctrine on Which the Church Stands or Falls, which is actually edited by Matthew Barrett, has a number of great contributions, including uh, Gerald Bray. Um, I believe he does the one on the patristics, and then um, Nick Needham, uh, Stephen Wellham. Uh, there, there's a number of guys in there. It's just a, just a great book. Now, for the traditions coming out of the Reformation, they viewed themselves as sitting in Catholic streams while Rome was building dams against them, and those dams were often constructed with strawmen against the reformers, such as the claim that the Protestant position on sola fide had no understanding of works or expected works. In other words, sola fide was painted as this picture of, wow, this is just licensed to sin, right? And really, we still see that um, to this day. But the axiom was, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. It does produce real work. It is a living faith. It is in accordance with James. There's not a contradiction there despite how it's often painted. Now, to, to detail all of these claims of continuity goes way beyond what we can do here. And again, one should check out Barrett's book. Um, as I'm looking through it, it looks looks solid. It looks great. It's not an easy read, but it's a good one so far. Um, so you can look at that book to, to see some of these tracings of continuity. I can't say how far he goes because I haven't finished it. So instead of trying to focus on that, we're going to focus on the Protestant conception of the Catholic Church first by looking at Calvin's exposition on the Catholic Church in Book 4 of his Institutes. And I'm going to use Philip Schaff's summary um, and his history of the Church to kind of help condense the information and move the discussion along. So Calvin has been observed by many scholars to be exceptional in his exposition on Catholicity. He placed a great emphasis and respect on the Holy Catholic Church of Christ, and at the same time, he protested against the abuses and corruptions found in the Church of their age. For Calvin... This seeking a reformation was not novel nor unfounded, 
as Roman Catholics would charge him and others, and us to this day. But instead, in step with scripture and church history, the Reformation was not only expected, but called for. He would begin with the Hebrew prophets to demonstrate this, showing how the Hebrew prophets would speak against a corrupt priesthood, how they would call them to reform in Israel in numerous instances. And in this way, the Catholic Church just mirrored Israel when they would not listen to the call to reform. Beyond that, we find the scribes and the Pharisees being called to reform by Jesus himself. The New Testament letters call for reform of local churches, and the church fathers in the post-New Testament era worked in letters, tomes, and councils to do the same. The argument that such a reform was unfounded and unbiblical was found wanting and foolish in light of the historical realities of people calling for reform within the church for, for years prior to the Reformation and the fact that Trent actually did implement some reforms. So in Calvin's work, he talks about how the Protestants understand the ancient creeds where it talks about the church. And if you don't know what we're talking about, we can just quote the Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest creeds, um, particularly in the West, too. Um, it ends with, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Calvin would say that this is not only in reference to the visible church, but also to all of the elect, including those who had already departed. He spends a moment talking about the preposition used in the Nicene Creed as some forms read that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And he would say that according to Eusebius and Augustine, the antique form of the Nicene Creed did not have this preposition, um, meaning that it's crucial that we understand that we do not believe in the church the same way we believe in God. Instead, we believe the church. And he would argue that we believe in God because our confidence is in full satisfaction in him and he is pure. But the church cannot have this said about it. So we believe the church, not in the church. Quoting Augustine, um, the church is Catholic or universal, united to Christ, who cannot be divided. We are the elect joined together as one body, and we depend on the head, who is Christ. The Catholic church is made up of this one body under the same spirit of God. He also speaks of the importance of communion with the saints, the body, and recognizing the necessity of such community. In fact, whenever you get into Calvin, he puts a lot of stress of union to Christ, and there's no exception whenever it comes to his doctrine of the church and how he understands union to Christ, because we are united to the body, and that is Christ's body, and Christ is the head. So when he speaks about the visible and historic church, he says, let us learn from her as mother, and how necessary the knowledge of her is, quote, since there is no other means of entering into life unless she conceives us in the womb, gives us birth, and unless she nourishes us at her breast, and, in short, keeps us under her charge and government until, divested of mortal flesh, we become like the angels, end quote. Now, as you can tell, Calvin had a high view of the church, and he had a high view of community within the church as a Christian. For Calvin, the church is necessary, and even abounding corruptions cannot justify a succession Contra the Anabaptists and the other radicals who would say that we need to just break away, start a new church, and so on and so forth. So Calvin, on this point, brings back the Old Testament prophets. The prophets neither raised themselves new churches nor built new altars for the sake of having separate sacrifices, but instead they called the people to come back with pure hands because they had considered that God had deposited his word among the nation and institution the ceremonies in which he was their worship, and he would go on to say that they would rather die than have been separated from the institutions of God, and instead they called for reform. He says, quote, But if the holy prophets were restrained by a sense of duty from forsaking the church on account of numerous 
and enamorous crimes which were practiced not by a few individuals, but by almost the whole nation. It is extreme arrogance in us if we presume immediately to withdraw from the communion of a church where the conduct of all members is not compatible either with the judgment or even with the Christian profession. Calvin will continue with this logic for Christ and his apostles, and he will conclude by saying that if anyone will not pay attention to the prophets and the apostles, let him at least look to the authority of Christ. And then he'll provide a quote from the church father, Cyprian, who says that, yes, there are impure vessels and tares found in the church, but this is not a reason to abandon it or withdraw it. Instead, we should labor to be the wheat and use our endeavors and exertions in a way to be vessels of gold and silver. And it would be arrogant to separate themselves from the province of the Son of God, that is the church, by pretending to fan the floor, clear away the chaff, and separate all terrors by the judgment of man. And from here, Calvin will say, quote, Let these two points then be considered as decided. First, that he who voluntarily deserts the external communion of the church where the word of God is preached and the sacraments are administered is without any excuse. Secondly, that the faults either of a few persons or of many form no obstacles to a due profession of our faith in the use of the ceremonies instituted by God, because the pious conscience is not wounded by the unworthiness of any other individual, whether he be a pastor or a private person, nor are the mysteries less pure or salutary to a holy and upright man, because they are received at the same time by the impure, end quote. So if you don't understand what's being said here, consider a church that's expository through the Bible, pure gospel, administers communion and baptism, and they're just a sound church. But then there's someone outside of this church who says, I'm not going to go there because it's full of hypocrites. Calvin's argument is that you have no excuse to abandon this church that is actively doing what was instituted by God on the basis of what another individual is doing. Instead, you should be within that congregation recognizing that their unpiousness does not wound you and nor are these means of grace that is the word and the sacraments less pure or salutary to the holy upright man because they are received also by these hypocrites. They are still beneficial, unchanging what God instituted and to say that you're not going to go just because of these other individuals is obscene. Now remember that first qualification of that analogy or that contemporary verbiage and how Calvin would respond to it. This is in light of a valid church that preaches the word, you know, the gospel, that exposits scripture, that administers baptism and communion, and also disciplines sin and does not tolerate sin. And we're getting there because you know that the question just probably popped up in your head that how can Calvin justify separation from the Roman church in light of these strong claims? Well, Calvin's previously mentioned reply to um, Sadolet comes back into play um, along with his work on the necessity of reforming the church. And this work has a number of arguments and doctrines that do exactly what the work's title says. It demonstrates the necessity of reform. He says, quote, The last and principal charge which with they bring against us is that we have made schism in the church. And here they fiercely maintain against us that for no reason it is lawful to break the unity of the church. How far they do us injustice, the books of our authors bear witness. Now, however... Let them take this brief reply, that we neither dissent from the church nor are aliens from her communion. Remember that the prophets and the apostles had, with the pretended church of their days, a contest similar to that which you see us have in our present day with the Roman pontiff and his whole train. When they, by the command of God, invade freely against idolatry, superstition, and the corruption of the temple and its sacred rites, against the carelessness and lethargy of the priests, 
that were constantly met with the objections which our opponents have ever in their mouths, that by dissenting from the common opinion, they violated the unity of the church. A little bit further down, he continues, that the eternal truth of God preached by the prophets and the apostles is on our side. We are prepared to show, and it is indeed easy for any man to perceive, but all that is done is to assail us with a battering ram. Nothing can excuse withdrawal from the church. We deny out and out that we do so. With what then do they urge us? With nothing more than this, that to them belongs the ordinary government of the church. But how much better right had the enemies of Jeremiah to use this argument? To them, at all events, there still remained a legal priesthood instituted by God so that their vocation was unquestionable. To those in the present day had their names of the prelates, cannot prove their vocation by any laws, human or divine. To pause right there and kind of summarize what's being said, Calvin is saying that the Roman Catholic institution is saying that the reformers are causing schism, but they're doing it on the sole basis that they are claiming to be the church. They are essentially calling themselves the church. They are taking over that role. They are presupposing it. They're begging the question. And therefore, any dissent is schismatic. Now, Calvin brings up Jeremiah and how Jeremiah pushed against an actual uh, corruption of God's instituted priesthood and says, look, if he can call these guys to repentance, then we can do the same to you. And we're not schismatic in the same way that Jeremiah was not schismatic. And Calvin continues, it is not enough, therefore, simply to throw out the name of church, but judgment must be used to ascertain which is the true church and what is the nature of its unity. And the thing necessary to be attended to, first of all, is beware of separating the church from Christ its head. When I say Christ, I include the doctrine of his gospel, which he sealed with his blood. Our adversaries, therefore, if they would persuade us that they are the true church, must first of all show that the true doctrine of God is among them. And this is the meaning of what we often repeat, that the uniform characteristics of the well-ordered church are the preaching of sound doctrine and the pure administration of the sacraments. For since Paul declares in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, it necessarily follows that any church not resting on this foundation must immediately fall. He now switches his focus. I now come to our opponents. They no doubt boast in lofty terms that Christ is on their side. As soon as they exhibit him in their word, we will believe it, but not sooner. They, in the same way, insist on the term church. But where, we ask, is that doctrine which Paul declares to be the only foundation of the church? Doubtless, your imperial majesty now sees that there is a vast difference between assailing us with the reality and assailing us only with the name of church. We are as ready to confess that they are those who have abandoned the church, the common mother of the faithful, the pillar and the ground of the truth, revolting from Christ also. But we mean a church which, from incorruptible seed, begets children for immortality, and when begotten nourishes them with spiritual food, that seed and food being the word of God, and which, by its ministry, preserves the entire truth which God deposited in its bosom. The mark is in no degree doubtful and no degree fallacious, and it is the mark which God himself impressed upon his church that she might be discerned thereby. Do we seem unjust in demanding to see this mark? Wherever it exists not, no face of a church is seen. If the name merely is put forward, we have only to quote the well-known passage of Jeremiah. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these, in 7.4. Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes, in 7.11. In like manner, the unity of the church, such as Paul describes it, we protest 
that we hold sacred, and we denounce anathema against all who in any way violate it. The principle from which Paul derives unity is that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who hath called us into one hope in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Therefore, we are of one body and one spirit as is here enjoined, if we adhere to God only, be bound to each other by the tie of faith. We ought moreover to remember what is said in another passage, the faith cometh by hear the word of the Lord. Let it therefore be a fixed point that the holy unity exists among us when consenting in pure doctrine, we are united to Christ alone. So Calvin is again saying that they just keep claiming church. This is the church. This is the church. And Calvin says, demonstrated. And he'll continue a little bit further down saying, let our opponents then in this first instance, draw near to Christ and let them convict us of schism and daring to dissent from them in doctrine. But since I have made it plain that Christ is banished from their society and that doctrine of his gospel is exterminated, their charge against us simply amounts to this. We adhere to Christ in preference to them. For what man, pray, will believe that those who refuse to be led away from Christ and his truth in order to deliver themselves into the power of men are thereby schismatics and dissenters from the communion of the church. So at this point, we can note that following Augustine, Calvin expresses that there's a visible and invisible church. This does not denote two churches, but instead the classes of Christians within the same communion. The invisible church are those within the visible church. Uh, the visible church obviously being those communities that can be seen. The invisible church are those who are actually united to Christ within the visible church. The distinction accounts for the mixed nature of the church. That is, there are genuine and nominal Christians. Furthermore, the invisible church extends beyond mere local communities. The church is frequently used in scripture to designate the whole multitude uh, dispersed over the whole world and every time who profess to worship the triune God, who are initiated into this faith by baptism, who testify to the unity and doctrine and charity by participation of the sacraments, and so on and so forth. The Protestant confessions will echo this understanding, but the Catholic or universal church is the body of Christ made up of all regenerate believers united to Christ across the ages and across the globe. This body of Christ is manifest in visible communities, and within these visible communities, some may not be united to Christ but are comprised of the visible church. So when is a community a church? Again, relying on Augustine, uh, Calvin will point out that the church is built on the prophets and the apostles found in the written revelation, which for Calvin, Rome exchanged this apostolic collection of writings for a chain of bishops of varying degrees of reliability and orthodoxy, while the apostolic faith is contained in the sacred writers, infallibly penned in the scriptures, and cannot be contradicted or replaced with apostolic succession, fallible men appointed to the seat of bishops with alleged oral apostolic tradition and no means of verification. The apostolic faith first and foremost begins and ends with scripture, the words of the apostles themselves. And so a true church is that church which builds upon the word, preaches the gospel, and administers baptism and the supper. The Belgic Confession of Faith does well to exemplify the general understanding. The marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if it maintains pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, and if church discipline is exercised in punishing sin. As for false churches, it ascribes more power and authority to itself and to its ordinances than to the word of God and will not submit itself to the yoke of Christ. Neither does it administer the sacraments as appointed by Christ in his word, but adds to and takes from as it thinks proper. It relies more upon men than upon Christ, and it persecutes those who live holily according to the word of God and rebuke it for its errors, covetousness, and idolatry. And that's in the Belgian Confession, Article 29. 
So Calvin states that the visible church of his time, which included the institution of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, there were those who were part of the invisible church in this institution, but the visible church with its papacy and corruption was schismatic and sectarian and was a deviation from the Catholic Church. Matt Slick does well to summarize the point of contention that was present in Calvin's day along with our own. Quote, when Catholics ask which Protestant denomination or church is the right one, they presuppose that a correct church must exist in the same way that the Roman Catholic Church exists. To them, a church is an earthly organization that consists of a hierarchical structure of pope, priest, and magisterium that interprets scripture and disseminates its versions of biblical truth, traditions where Christ and Mary, etc., to its members. But this is a false assumption. They are committing the logical fallacy called begging the question, where they assume their position is true without demonstrating it to be true. They fail to recognize that the church is more than an earthly organization and is both visible, that is building organization members, etc., and invisible, comprised of the actual redeemed true Christians. This is why Protestants focus more on the invisible church, where the Catholics focus more on the visible church and its supposed authority and pedigree. Unfortunately, Catholics are so entrenched in their true church mentality that they can't entertain the idea that the true church can encompass many denominations and local congregations since it is comprised of the saved, end quote. So Protestantism and its unity and essentials and diversity and not essentials not only emulates the early ecumenical church where there was diversity of opinion on a number of issues, but unity around these essential core truths, whether it be Nicaea or Constantinople as that developed, but the Protestant tradition does not restrict the one true church to a particular narrow dogma of Rome, such as Mariology, submission to the Roman pontiff, and things of that nature. In essence, we actually have a greater sense of unity and Catholicity in that it does not require rigid uniformity on various dogmas that, for Protestants, are speculative, extra-biblical, and later developed. Protestants, by emphasizing that the Catholic Church is comprised of believers across all ages and beyond a mere building or institution, have a greater sense of Catholicity. And this position is not unique to me. I didn't invent it. Uh, it's the position of many Protestants. And in fact, uh, one of the most recent Protestants that I saw that had an exposition similar to this is Gavin Orland on his channel, Truth Unites. You can go check out his channel. He has a number of great episodes actually on this Eastern Orthodoxy and dialogues with Lutherans and um, uh, just a number of other topics. It's a really great channel. He does a good job. So that's going to wrap up our Reformation special. Hopefully it's of some benefit to you. Hopefully in some shape or form you feel a deeper connection with the word Catholic and how the Protestants understood their Catholicity. And hopefully you recognize that we don't need to abandon that term. If you look at the old Protestant confessions, you see that it generally was not rejected. It was just distinguished from the institution of Roman Catholicism. So until next week, God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.